Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from New York City. Coming to you uh, from Washington, D.C., of course, we have Ed Luce of the Financial Times. How are you doing, Ed? Very good, thank you. And in Alexandria, Virginia, we have Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University Law Center. Hi, Rosa. Hi, David. And from Deer Isle, Maine, we have the author of a new book and a friend of ours, Tom Ricks, Pulitzer Prize-winning writer who has written a book now called First Principles, What America's Founders Learned from the Greeks and Romans and How That Shaped Our Country. Um, Timely, interesting, great book, really one of those uh, that I I cannot recommend uh, highly enough. Um, uh, But that's true of all of Tom's books. If, If you haven't read Churchill and Orwell or the generals or the others, you should uh, definitely go back and take a look. Hi, Tom. How are you? Thanks for having me. Uh, Yeah. Well, as we were saying before we started, book tours in the era of COVID are a lot easier, aren't they? You know, you sit at home. They are. And you don't even have to put pants on. (laughs) Oversharing time. Oh, um, uh, <laughs> you do. And as we have recently learned, people need to put their pants on. They need to keep their pants on, and a whole bunch of other rules. Okay, that- I promise to keep my pants on during the <laughs> during this interview. Yeah, Rosa, Rosa is absolutely right. It's one of the things that 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 we have learned. Um, uh, I I've read not only the book, but I've read a a bunch of the reviews and 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 articles about it, all of which were glowing. Um, but you know, one of the things that keeps coming up in all of them is the sort of origin story, which is you know why did you write this book? And I think that's a good place to begin because we've we've gone a full cycle since then. And I and and so what what led you down this road? Well, you're right. It was actually almost exactly four years ago. It was the first Wednesday in November, right after the election of President Trump. And it was a gray day here in Maine, as it often is in November. And I got up and I went downstairs, made my coffee and went into my library. And I thought, I have no idea what happened last night, why it happened. I did not expect it to happen. Uh, Clearly, there's a whole lot of these the people in this country who have a different conception of what this country is supposed to be. And I've been taught in college that when you have questions like that, you should go back to fundamentals, to first principles. So I took Aristotle's politics down from the shelf and began reading it in the context of the election of Donald Trump. And 
Among other things, I was struck that Aristotle says that oligarchy, even with the trappings of democracy, is a very unstable form of government. And so I thought first, okay, Aristotle's predicting that Trump will be an unstable presidency and well might be a one-term presidency. Aristotle led me to other ancient Greek philosophers, historians, and into Roman Greek history and philosophy. And from that into the American founders uh, who were steeped in the ancient world, who got their political vocabulary from the ancient world. And even much more than Locke, we were always, always taught in high school and college that John Locke provided the basis of thinking uh, for the Constitution and the Declaration, but much more than Locke. And this is easily demonstrated simply by looking at the number of citations. They were influenced by Montesquieu, uh, the French philosopher. And that's significant because Montesquieu comes heavily out of the study of ancient Rome. Not only is the spirit of law as his masterpiece, uh, is very much about what we can learn from Rome, but uh, a, pre a previous work by his was specifically about the decline of the Roman Republic. And the decline of the Roman Republic becomes clear is the central political narrative of the revolutionary generation in America. Uh, for them, it was a warning sign. What happened to the Roman Republic? Well, it was brought down, they thought, by factionalism and corruption. So those were two great things to avoid. Ultimately, it is taken over by a general leading an army. Another thing they become very concerned about avoiding, it's one reason they are so grateful to George Washington for yielding power at the end of the revolution and not trying to be a Caesar or a Cromwell, another general who, who did a takeover of political power at the end of a revolution. And it also intrigued me how they applied all this, what they thought, um, how, how, how can you make a large sustainable republic? Montesquieu had believed that you couldn't have a large republic that really was made for a city-state type of state. Uh, and then finally, I began looking at why this classical model fell apart so quickly in the 1790s as America becomes more democratic, more populist. Uh, it fascinated me. Fundamentally though, I think the reason I enjoyed this, writing this book so much was uh, it was an excuse to leave the 21st century for four years and hide out in the 18th century, which I found much uh, cozier and, and more amenable than Trumpist America. Very, very interesting. And I'm, I will come back to that. But I, I think what I'd like to do is I'd like to turn to Ed and then to Rosa and give them the opportunity to ask you a question, too. And I, I get the impression um, that, uh, you know, a lot of your educational background comes from a bit of a classical tradition. And, you know, Britain is a country that uh, prides itself on classically educated leaders. And look where that's led. So uh, <laughs> um, I, I'm wondering how you react to, to, to Tom and perhaps if you have a question for him. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, just a very quick answer to that. Um, Boris, obviously, Boris Johnson is no advertisement for classics. That's for sure. That's his, um, that's what he was trained in. I was trained at least at an undergraduate level in PPE, 
which is slightly different to classics. Um, and well, one of those P's, though, is is philosophy, isn't it? Doesn't yeah, it for lead sure. you back to these guys? Yeah. And there's some ancient world in that. But of course, David Cameron studied PPE, so that's utterly discredited. Um, <laughs> and as I have several others. Tom, um, I, I haven't yet read your, your book. I'm definitely going to. Um, uh, question I have, it's kind of a superficial one, but but I'd be fascinated by your answer is ancient Rome and, and indeed ancient Greece uh, were incredibly modern sort of for their time. They created the modern sort of uh, forms of politics and terminology that we've inherited. Um, and I guess were the ideals to which many people aspired, most famously the founding fathers as, as you've just put very well. Does the conditions in, in, do the conditions in late 18th century America, um, particularly given that there was slavery and the fact that there was slavery in both ancient Rome and ancient Greece and levels, categories of sort of, of, of political um, status, would do you think that that at some level appealed to the founding fathers? Oh, I think um, the fact of ancient slavery, slavery appealed to them enormously obviously, especially to the American South. Uh, and there's one particularly pernicious reason it appealed to them. There's a general agreement among scholars that the ancient slavery, while it had uh, very harsh places, generally was not as harsh as American slavery. For one big reason, uh, ancient Roman slavery, uh, which I've looked more at, was not race-based whereas American slavery explicitly was race-based. Uh, ancient slaves had some rights. Uh, they had the right to petition the emperor and the, their offspring uh, could, be, could hold public office. Whereas in America, uh, slaves freed black people, according to the Dred Scott decision, had no rights that white America needed to respect none whatsoever. And effectively, even after emancipation in 1863, and then with the end of the Civil War in 1865, Black people couldn't hold public office uh, by law in some places, and ineffectively through Jim Crow and through violent suppression of Black rights. You had no Black members of Congress from 1901 until the end of the Civil Rights Movement in America, um, seven decades later. Uh, so it's only recently that Black Americans have emerged, first from the having no rights and then from a second class citizenship uh, to actually enjoy similar rights. And you see, uh, especially in the South in the 19th century, as the argument over slavery becomes more pointed, it's really, sadly, the last part of the classic world that uh, Americans rely on. There's one line in Aristotle to some readings justifies slavery. Uh, and the South leaned on this heavily. As one scholar said, it, they made Aristotle more famous for this in the 19th century than he had been for a, a couple of millennia. Um, the, the founders had a different ancient world though than we had. Uh, and it took me a while to kind of figure this out. It's sort of a three cushion sh shot in, in scholarship. The ancient world that they looked at was not ours. For example, uh, Rome stood very much in the foreground. Greece was kind of way off in the background. They really didn't read much Greek literature with the exception 
of some philosophers and Xenophon. The Greek dramatist, uh, for example, really don't come on the stage uh, as part of world culture until the 19th century as part of uh, the German uh, scholars, uh, scholarly dig into to Greece uh, and as part of Romanticism. There is an exception here. Thomas Jefferson, among the four people I look at, is more Greek than Roman. Uh, he's a fan of Athens. And Athens generally was not seen by the revolutionary generation as a place to emulate. It was kind of flighty. It was anarchic. Uh, the ancient Greek city-state that the revolutionary Americans admired was Sparta. Samuel Adams, in revolutionary in Boston, said he wants Boston to be a Sparta uh, of New England. So they, they look at the ancient world differently. Like the only dramatist they read from the ancient world was Terence. Nobody reads Terence these days, as far as I can tell. Um, Cicero for them was the central political figure. These days he's seen kind of as a fatuous, um, you know, vain, uh, ineffectual politician. They really thought Cicero was the important figure to try to be. Uh, if, if first try to be Cato, as George Washington does, or be Cicero, as John Adams does. Rosa, what what what, what thoughts do you have, and what question, perhaps, for Tom? Um, I guess you know, Tom, this is something that that Ed and I were talking about, uh, and Ed wrote a piece on this not not long ago. Um, you know that you you talk about and you write in your book that that the 2016 election left you thinking you know, what is America supposed to be? And you, that, that, that assumes that it matters to us what it was supposed to be by, by the framers, right? And, and your focus on, uh, obviously on, on four of them. And, and so just, just to play devil's advocate, you know, how do you respond to the, who cares? Who cares what they thought America was supposed to be? You know, this was a bunch of, as, as, you, as you so skillfully document, this was a bunch of fallible humans whose lives were full of intellectual and moral contradictions, um, who came up with a set of ideas that were influenced by a bunch of people who'd been dead for, you know, 1700 or 2000 years before them. And who really cares what they think? And that has, you know, this notion of what is America supposed to be, is, is that a question that even makes any sense today? Should anyone, did, why should we care what Jefferson or Washington thought and what influence Aristotle or Cicero had on them? You know, I mean, I mean obviously this has been a question um, that has been raised for, you know, not just now, but but for, for millennia, well, not millennia, that's an exaggeration, but for, but for you know, century and a half, right? I'm thinking of, of William Lloyd Garrison, the famous uh, abolitionist uh, who wrote in the 1830s that the, you know, the, this so-called sacred, sacred instrument, the Constitution of the United States, dripping as it is with human blood is how he described it. You know, that, that, that it would, the framing documents and the intellectual framers of the American Republic that we have all inherited these vestiges of was, uh, you know, dripping with dripping with human blood from the outset. It's become clear partly as a result of the election of 2016, um, 
um, that are it's structurally flawed and it's got profound democratic deficits that the framers saw as advantages given their their frame of reference, but that today, you know, two senators per state, whether it's whether it's uh, North Dakota or whether it's California, et cetera, um, electoral college, today we see as bizarre anachronisms that cannot be justified by most modern understandings of rights or political theory or social contract theory or or who makes up America today. So so I guess I guess that's you know I'm throwing a lot at you, but but that seems like the sort of the obvious fundamental challenge um, is is why should why should we not today say just as Garrison said in 1832 um, this document is worst case dripping with blood, best case irrelevant. Um, I don't really care what Washington thought that Aristotle thought. The, the challenge for us now today is to say, not what is America supposed to be, but what, what, what do we want America to be? And can we make it that, or is that no longer possible? Well, first I'd say Garrison was absolutely right about the constitution. Uh, it's one of the great mistakes the founders made is Slavery is not a stain on the American fabric. It is woven into the American fabric in the Constitution. And it's one reason that here, I think now we're about, what, 150 years into Reconstruction after the Civil War, we're still pulling those threads out of the Constitution, out of American life. There are still a substantial number of people who do not believe in some form that Black Americans and or other Americans are fully equal before the law. Unfortunately, many of the people who seem to believe that wear police uniforms. But if you want to understand where we are, you've got to understand where you've been. We live in a house that they built, that they designed. Now, it's had additions built on the house. They call them amendments, and they built it to be amended in their wisdom. But you got to understand how they got there. Uh, it, it, if you're going to be especially an OG originalist, to go back and, and say this is what they meant, you better understand what they meant because words have changed meanings. Virtue, a very important word to them, that appears much more in their works than freedom or liberty do. Virtue meant something different to them than it means to us. Uh, and you're right. The, the reason that tiny states and California, states 25 times smaller than California, have the same number of senators is because at the Constitutional Convention, they were looking at ancient Greek city-state uh, organizations. And they looked at the Lycian, they looked at the, I don't pronounce this correctly, I believe, Amphictyonic League. And the Amphictyonic League, a kind of NATO or EU of ancient Greek city-states, had an arrange, arrangement under which city-states, no matter how big or small, all had two votes each at their meetings. Also, these guys made it up as they went along. And if you want to start changing it and understanding it and fixing some of the problems, it's good to understand the arguments they had. One of the arguments they had in the Constitutional Convention was should the presidency be one person or be several people? Uh, they talked about having a three-headed presidency decided against it, again, on the example of Rome. They said it caused too many problems in ancient Rome. So they use these examples. If we're gonna unravel some of these things, uh, I think 
the place to begin is uh, by looking at, at, at how they thought about these things. One thing that strikes me is I think the Supreme Court um, would benefit from having terms of 18 years or 14 years uh, after which you're out. Uh, this is something I think uh, they could have easily entertained. One of the discussions they, that they had was uh, who should impeach the president? Should it be the Congress or the Supreme Court? Um, Madison, from the very beginning to the very end of the Constitutional Convention, wanted a federal veto over all state laws, which would have made for a very different construct. Uh, so I think it, it is a deeply flawed situation. I think if the founders came back today, they'd be pleased that the Constitution has lasted 250 years. They'd be shocked at how much of a problem slavery turned out to be for the country. Uh, and I think they would be equally shocked by how corrupt our politics is, using their sense of corruption, that the involvement of money in politics was a form of corruption. And seeing the dollars were more important than votes, as they are nowadays in America, I think they would say, you guys are really blowing it. That's not what we intended. And uh, you have a form, you're verging on oligarchy rather than democracy, and that's dangerous. You know, I think one of the things that struck me as interesting about the book um, are sort of words that I, without your permission, added on to the title, um, which is for better or for worse. In other mm -hmm. words, you know, and and we've talked a bit about it here. You know, the, you know what what America's founders learned from the Greeks and Romans and how that shaped the country for better or for worse. And part of it is the way it shaped the country was based on a Greece and a Rome that didn't exist. And part of it is that the Greece and the Rome that existed were deeply flawed and ultimately failed. And they selectively chose what was to be valued and what was not to be valued. Part of it, and I did the same thing. You know, I was asked to write a book about Trump, and I, I, I ended up escaping back into the 18th century, and and looking for other examples of traitors and people who betrayed the country. Because I'd rather be dealing with history than dealing with this present moment. Part of it is that the guys that were doing the interpreting were not particularly virtuous. I mean, Jefferson who drew upon the Greeks and wrote about these things. He was a really pretty odious guy in a lot of aspects of his personal life and his professional behavior. Washington had his flaws. Um, you know, Adams, you know, we'll be talking about Adams again in, 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 in a few weeks because Adams left town without attending Jefferson's inauguration. And you At know, least he turned over power peacefully. Well, uh, yes, there is that. Yes, he was a bitter one-term president who disliked the outcome of that election. Being John Adams, yeah, he took the 4 a.m. coach to Baltimore. Uh, but and, and he actually threw out some impediments um, to kind of mess up the beginning of Jefferson's term with a, a bunch of last-minute appointments of federalists. And although, and although he used some random capital letters in his in his prose that we would not put there today, he didn't he didn't write entirely in all caps. Well, that's a yeah, that, that's it, a really you really cut to the heart of it, Rosa. If there were a tweet uh, <laughs> record of John Adams, it would be awful. <laughs> There's a moment in which John Adams uh, describes how happy he is to see that a newspaper editor who had criticized him that his house had burned down and his wife and children had died. 
quite Trumpian. Yes, quite yeah. Well, it is quite Trumpian. And, you know, Jefferson installed a guy in the State Department who was a journalist to go and write a journal that was pro-Jefferson. And, and Hamilton ended up doing the same thing. And, they, you know, they they were trying to rig the, you know, create their own Fox News back in the 18th century, too. And I'm just wondering, you know, you, you went to study first principles, but when you got <laughs> to the end of studying the first principles, did you end up with more insights into why things are not working um, than, you know, lessons that we ought to have learned and didn't? Well, yes, they are flawed people, but that makes it all the more interesting. All people are, are flawed. And in my experience, great people are greatly flawed. Part of the question is, how do they deal with their flaws? Washington, I think, um, confronts them admirably. He really tries to think in an empirical way about uh, his problems and his work. He adjusts as a general very well during the revolution in a way that the uh, British generals do not. He learns. He's relatively young, 44 years old at the beginning of the war. And he comes in a rather conventional military thinker. And he makes real changes because he keeps on getting defeated. And he ends up winning the war through rather, rather unconventional means by prosecuting the war differently. So, and he also has a titanic temper, which he generally controls, but doesn't always. And at the end of his life, uh, does a serious study of abolitionist pamphlets, uh, not really discussed very often. And I think that's partly because he was not well-educated, um, there's a moment in the, in the book in which John Adams and Thomas Pickering debate whether he's illiterate. But he learned uh, well from experience, more than most people, more than most generals. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, you mentioned, yeah, he's a big old hypocrite. Uh, nonetheless, he writes the single most inspirational document in American history, arguably a piece of political um, writing that also was great literature. Uh, that has aspirations in it that even now we do not attain. But it, uh, the declaration with its statement that all men are created equal, again and again comes back in, in American history, uh, into a question of who we are, where we're going, how we're going to get there. So Lincoln cites it in the Gettysburg Address. Uh, the women's liberation movement in the early uh, 19th century cites it in their first big meeting. Uh, Martin Luther King cites it in the I Have a Dream speech, and Harvey Milk cites it at the beginning of the gay liberation movement. Um, so, yeah, I have a lot of problems with Jefferson. The, uh, there's a saying about, in, among American historians, the more you know about Washington, the more you admire him. And I'd say the flip side is the more you know about Jefferson, the more elusive he is, and the more you begin to doubt what, whether he really means what he's saying or whether he finds it convenient to say it at that, that moment. Yeah, I, by the way, agree and have come away several times admiring Washington more and more um, and and really doubting a bunch of these other guys a lot. You know, Ed, I seem to recall having had a number of conversations with you about this American mythology that we sort of, you know, frame our founders, our frame our framers in a, in a certain kind of way that doesn't live up to it. And as while well, Tom was talking there, you know, one of the things that struck me was 
uh, that the aspirational document succeeds much better than the how to govern document. Um, uh, and, um, you know, I guess that that works for most revolutions. I'm wondering what your reaction is to listening to Tom and thinking of it in the light of this, 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 this mythologizing that we do. Uh, and if you have any additional questions or thoughts. Um, I've often thought, now this is a fascinating, such a fascinating and rich topic. Uh, I, I've often thought that Jefferson, and I agree with, I agree with you, David, that the, the more I've learned about Jefferson, the less I like him and the opposite for Washington. And to some degree of Hamilton, uh, Madison is the one I've read least about. Um, but the um, I've often thought about Jefferson that his idea that this constitute that the working document, the Constitution, should be changed every generation, um, was him displacing his own guilt um, about the five eighths parts of it and the fact that he was still a slave owner and that sort of famous comment he made about it's like holding onto a wolf's ears about slavery. Um, showed he knew exactly, you know, how hypocritical he was um, and that he was having his cake, namely that I'm the great sort of freedom French revolutionary guy, um, but also eating it, still owning slaves. And of course, running a mile at the first whiff of red coats being anywhere near Monticello. Um, he proved rather skittish when pursued up the mountain by the British. Right. <laughs> and there's Hamilton Fort, Washington Fort. Um, uh, so the question I, uh, um, I, I wanted to really wanted to ask you, Tom, is um, during your writing of this book, the 1619 debate began. Um, and as a Brit, um, it's a very flattering um, theory of the world because it says America broke off uh, because Britain was abolitionist. Um, and but as somebody living here, I think, well, uh, you know, and having sort of read and thought a bit more about this than I would have otherwise, um, I'm, I'm a little bit suspicious of, of something that paints American history entirely in blood. And I'm just wondering what um, what your view is of the 1619 debate. First of all, I think it's a great debate. Uh, it basically is the this debate that my family's been having around the dinner table for the last 30 years. My wife is a 19th century historian. Our daughter became a historian. Our son getting sick of this fled to Spain. Um, <laughs> at one point, um, when our daughter, who's now 30, uh, was seven years old, she once flung her fork down on the dining room table and said, tobacco and slaves, tobacco and slaves. That's all this family ever talks about. <laughs> we had a running argument over the dinner table about the Civil War. Uh, for years and years. It's a good debate to have. Uh, and there is thinking in uh, among scholars these days that yes, uh, that slavery was caused uh, at least in part, I mean, the, the American Revolution was caused at least in part by the fear uh, that the British would undermine slavery. And in fact, there is an effort early in the war uh, by the British governor of Virginia to enlist slaves to fight uh, uh, against the revolutionaries. It, it doesn't really succeed. Uh, the British generals uh, were not really politically adept enough to pull it off. Uh, and it would have presented the Americans with great problems had they succeeded in that. 
But you mentioned Madison. I want to say about Hamilton, by the way, uh, I have real problems with the popular depiction of John Adams and Hamilton. John Adams is not this cute little teddy bear Paul Giamatti portrays him as in the very good uh, miniseries. He's not the cuddly bunny that we get in David McCullough's book, which is really more a biography of a nice marriage between John Adams and the brilliant Abigail Adams, who I think really is what she, the brilliance of Abigail Adams is that she is able to present John Adams to the world in an acceptable form. Hamilton was batshit crazy in a lot of ways, and that doesn't come across uh, in the opera about him. Uh, Hamilton really also, by the time of his death, doesn't like America. Uh, he writes at one point to one of his closest friends, there is no place in this country for me. He really wanted a monarchy. That was his presentation at the Constitutional Convention. I think it was an eight-hour speech that said, um, you need a monarchy, uh, or you need a president for life, and you need senators for life. And then he gets back on his horse and goes back to New York. I, I don't know what he thought he was doing. They kind of said, yeah, uh, whatever, Hamilton. At one point, Hamilton tries to manipulate the army into kind of a mutiny uh, to force Congress to raise revenue more. Washington writes to him very carefully, uh, an army is, this army is not a good thing to trifle with. Finally, Madison, um, Madison to me was a great revelation. I think he is so underappreciated. And we talked about, does this thing work? Uh, well, first, Madison looking at uh, Ridlock today would say that's a feature, not a bug. Uh, that the way he dispersed power, very much in reaction to what he saw in Britain and elsewhere, he wanted power across the country. So you get power dispersed between the states and a central government. He wanted power dispersed across the three branches of the federal government. And he dispersed power within the legislative branch into two different houses. But this vast dispersal of power is his answer to a series of questions. Uh, first, how do you prevent one group from dominating? Well, you throw power across the country. You make it so widely dispersed that anybody who wants to make progress has to make a coalition, has to find alliances, has to cut deals. And we're not seeing a lot of progress these days because gridlock is designed into the system. Uh, Madison, again and again, uh, I think is the most important figure after Washington. Madison comes along, he and Hamilton younger than the others, and says, you know, the Articles of Confederation government isn't working. And so he pushes for a congressional, I mean, for a constitutional convention. He spends four years studying ancient Greek and Roman history, looking at Greek city-states, looking at alliances, looking at the flaws of republics and why they fall apart. And he presents all this at the Constitutional Convention, uh, plays a big role in that. Then he leads the ratification campaign with Hamilton. And then in another great move in the 1790s, when John Adams is freaking out about faction, Madison and Jefferson create an opposition party and create the first version of political parties in America. Now, this was faction. This was one of the things that the older revolutionaries thought was terrible. You couldn't have partisanship. They said, no, you got to have it because you got to balance checks and balances. You, virtue isn't working for us, this Roman conception of virtue. Uh, virtue is go, going out the window, so let's balance vice with vice. So again and again, Madison, small, frail, had some form of epilepsy, 
did not have a good speaking voice, not a great writer. There's very few phrases we remember from Madison. Madison is the essential man again and again. Uh, Washington basically gives us the country by winning the revolution, but it's Madison who designs the country and gives us the country we have now. I think he, he really is worthy of study. Uh, I really like Richard Brookheiser's biography of him. Brookheiser understands politics in a way that academic scholars don't. Brookheiser has a, he's a conservative with a feel for politics and that really comes through in his biography. Uh, three little uh, footnotes before I give it to Rosa for a last uh, question or comment. Um, uh, one, you know, Ed, when we talk about 1619 and we talk about British abolitionism, um, you know, it's worth remembering that uh, of the words that did get passed into the Constitution or, or the Declaration of Independence uh, from British tradition, there were, of course, some from Locke. And, you know, he's hailed, you know, um, but when he wrote about life, liberty and property, part of what he meant was slaves because Locke was actually on the committee that oversaw the slave trade in the UK. And so when he was writing about all this glorious stuff, he wasn't exactly living it um, either. Um, and, and, and I, you know, I would add, I, I, I think Madison is a kind of an interesting, weird guy, but uh, on behalf of the institution where um, uh, I went to college, I feel obligated that in addition to mentioning Madison, and Hamilton, you include John Jay um, in that, that, that group that are trying to ratify the Constitution. And the final point that I would just make um, is that Washington gave us the country by winning. But I always think of the two great acts of, of George Washington, first being turning down being a king and then leaving office at the end of his term. And it was, it was you know, there are very few instances you can actually think of in history where the character of an individual translates so directly into the success or failure of a of political enterprise like a country, as, as in Washington's case. Anyway, that's my little footnotes. R Rosa, question. Um, uh, well, I guess, Tom, the, the obvious question to end on is, is you know, can this can this mishmash of a nation be saved, right? Um, where does all this leave us? We have this, we have this constitutional framework that is both dripping with blood and, and at the same time uh, redolent of numerous very worthy ideas um, that was drafted by flawed men in a flawed society based on flawed understandings of other flawed men who lived in other flawed societies uh, a couple thousand years earlier. Um, if Madison woke up today, you know, I have two, I have two pieces of question. You, you started to talk about the, the first piece. You know, so maybe the first piece is if somebody like Madison, a thoughtful, who we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna anoint as the, the best of them in terms of uh, intellectual honesty, perhaps. Um, you know, if Madison was was brought back to life um, and lived through the last four or five years, uh, would he be saying, you know, okay, I see some messes here, but overall, I think I think glad they, I really am glad that they've kept that constitution, or would he be 
saying, oh my God, this is horrible. I can't believe these idiots clung to this constitution for so long, given that the United States of America today is so vastly larger, vastly more diverse, vastly different than it was. What's wrong with these people? You know, why are they clinging to this text as if it is sacred text rather than something? And we, you know, we just kind of made it up. Um, that we made up in Philadelphia on a hot day in Philadelphia. Precisely. And question two, though, you know, mm -hmm. very much related to that is where does this leave us? You know, what, what, what insights does this leave us with uh, for how we should be thinking about repair work or, or reinvention? Uh, you know, should we tear up our constitutions and do as some have done and somewhat unrealistically demand a new constitutional convention? Should we say, well, it's what we've got, or as, as my colleague Mike, Mike Seidman at Georgetown, who I was previously quoting to Ed, you know, if we think of the constitution as, as, as poetry rather than prose, we'll, do, we'll be much better off if we stop taking it quite so literally. Like, how do, where, how, where do we go? So that's two questions. Um. Madison, uh, in one of his more memorable phrases, uh, one of his few memorable phrases, said, if men were angels, we wouldn't need a government. Uh, if he came back today, I think, uh, first of all, he would be very pleased to see that he beat Montesquieu, that Montesquieu said republics don't last. They're not sustainable, especially big republics. So the first thing he'd say is, hey, it did last. Uh, it sure. worked. Um, but he'd also say, I think he'd yell, amend it. It has problems. It was designed to be amended. That's why we call them amendments. And the it's a process. I don't understand why the amending the Constitution has slowed down so much. There were a lot of amendments early on. After um, the election of 1800, they clearly realized <laughs> we, this is a mess. We need to redesign this little chunk of it. And I think a lot of it, um, I think, they may have underestimated the degree to, to which the Supreme Court uh, would be a defender of property uh, over other things. Uh, I think they would be surprised that we haven't had uh, constitutional conventions that simply review and try to address some of these things. Uh, you mentioned Washington, though. I was thinking today about this, especially because Washington in his first inaugural says this is an experiment. And um, it's a real test on whether the, what we're putting forth here is going to work. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about that because Jeffrey Goldberg interviewed President Obama about Obama's new book. In the course of it, Obama said, look, America is an experiment, specifically in multi-ethnic, multicultural democracy, and we can still blow it. So how do we blow it? perhaps not by amending it, perhaps not by making it work better. And that is the lesson I think really we really could take away from this book is, look, these people were daring in how they tried to conceive of government. We should try to be a little more daring and a little bit less like Mitch McConnell. I think if there's any advice every listener can take away from every episode of Deep State Radio, it's you will always do better by being a little bit less like Mitch McConnell. Um, you know, I Tom, I, yeah, I, I'm really, really um, glad that you uh, uh, took the time. By the way, when uh, Obama, I read that comment I, uh, of Obama's, I thought of you, Ed, because 
Obama actually says what it, Tom said, but he says, this is the first great experiment in large multicultural democracy. And actually, we started becoming a truly multicultural democracy roughly at the same time India did. Um, and because for the period before that, we weren't that multicultural. Uh, and it is a larger experiment, multicultural democracy, and we shouldn't, we shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't be so um, uh, self-congratulatory. But you know, I think, if I may, as I wrap this up, that is that is one of the great takeaways that I uh, that I took from your book, Tom, um, and that is, uh, yes, go back to first principles partially to understand them, partially to understand the flaws that led to them. Uh, go back to the people who chose those first principles, partially to understand what they valued, partially to understand what they didn't understand or they misconstrued. Um, uh, and I think you know it's interesting because at this particular moment, if you read the book, I guess maybe if you just read the book with my eyes, I came away with it as something of an indictment of originalism, um, which it might sound like it's the opposite of that. Uh, but I think we, we, if you read it and you, and you, and you recognize the really uh, incisive scholarship uh, that you offer up, it couldn't be more timely, not because Trump was such an aberration but because of what Rosa teaches in her class and what I've increasingly come to believe over the past few years, which is, yes, let's celebrate what's good in the constitution, but let's recognize that the people who established it were revolutionaries who believed in change above other things. And that we have this document that is calcified and we are dying of some of the things that are calcified within it. And if we do not fix those things, disproportionate power to um, uh, underpopulated states um, being high among the list, we're not gonna survive as a democracy. Uh, and so it's, it's time, time to understand th that which motivated them as well. Anyway, sorry for the sermonette. I'm really grateful that you wrote the book. Congratulations. It's a great book. It's a great discussion. It's really important to look back at these things, uh, but to do it in a way that's so lively is really um, special. Uh, so thank you, Tom. Thank you, Ed. Thank you, Rosa. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, go to the DSRnetwork.com if you want to hear what else we've got in store uh, later this week and, and onward. Uh, and... Uh, you know, as things get tougher out there, and I think the next couple of months are going to get really tough from a health perspective, do make special efforts to keep yourself healthy and safe.